I V M. Hello and welcome to the Wire Talks. I'm Siddharth Bhatia. What we see in India all around nowadays is something that we last experienced in 1975 uh, when there was a formal so-called legal uh, emergency that was imposed by Mrs. Gandhi's government. And since then, after 1977, India has had uh, democratic governments and this particular government that is administering the country at the moment is also uh, democratically elected. But what we are seeing reminds us of the emergency. Critics and dissenters are being silenced. Independent institutions are being compromised. And the media is crawling, but very enthusiastically. This will definitely sound to many of us like the emergency. The recent arrests of journalist and activist Tista Sitilwad and soon after journalist and fact-checker Mohammad Zubair have also invoked memories of those dark days. So is the emergency back but without declaring the emergency? Professor Christophe Jaffrelo, who teaches South Asian politics and history at Sciences Po in France and King's College in London, has written two recent books, one about the emergency of 1975 and another on India under Narendra Modi. So this is uh, very, very uh, coincidental. If you put the books together, you can understand what is going on in India. Professor Jaffrelo, who is one of the best-known international academics on South Asia, has written several other books on India and Pakistan, including on Hindu fundamentalism, Baba Sahib Ambedkar, and the history of Pakistan. And he is our guest today, and he will try and put in put some perspective into what has happened and what is happening in India. Professor Jaffrelo, welcome to the Wire Talks. Thank you, Tijat. Thank you for the invitation. Your two recently published books, India's First Dictatorship on the Emergency and another on Modi's India, seem to be somehow now connected in some way. Are we seeing signs of another dictatorship? Well, if we use the categories of political science, we could say that uh, India is today experiences what is known as competitive authoritarianism or electoral authoritarianism. Th these are concepts that we use in political science to describe regimes which are Janus-like. You know, on, on the one hand, there are elections. Uh, the citizens choose their rulers. But on the other hand, elections are not a level playing field anymore. And in the particular case of today's India, uh, there are uh, two reasons why elections are not a level playing field anymore. One is because BJP is in a position to spend much more money than any of the other opposition parties. In fact, in 2019, it has spent more than $3.5 billion, which is much more than all the other parties for saturating uh, the public sphere, among other things. And, and secondly, 
this electoral scene is not a level playing field either because, because of media coverage that is massively favoring the ruling party. And, and again, uh, saturation of the public sphere in 2014 and 2019 um, made the competition very difficult for opposition parties. But what I would add is that we need to go beyond elections huh? and we need to look at what is politics in India between elections because democracy is under attack for more serious reasons when you look at the way uh, checks and balances are not working anymore. Hmm? Most of the institutions have become, have become instruments of the executive. They are the usual suspects, the CBI, um, but you can now add the NIA, Election Commission, Central Vigilance Commission, and even more importantly, the judiciary, because the judiciary was the pillar, the main pillar of the rule of law, as it has to be. Uh, but we see now a Supreme Court of India not taking any decision against the Modi government for the last six years, you can't name one except possibly the appointment of the new CBI chief, which was probably lately the only indication of some independence. But otherwise, the Supreme Court either validates very controversial measures. We've seen in the past the Adar bill considered as a money bill, electoral bonds, that the Asian Commission itself had considered as uh, not so good as an ID. And if it does not validate measures of that kind, it sits on the issues. And for years, uh, the uh, Citizenship Amendment Act, uh, abolition of Article 370, no decision has been made on, on, on these key issues, which are now two, three years old. So that's clearly why beyond the uh, bias in the election competition, we may say that India has entered uh, a new phase and is uh, experiencing a new kind of regime. So that really what you're saying, uh, Christophe, is that uh, it's not only not a level playing field, because that we are talking about the elections, that during those five years between elections, everything seems to go in favor of the ruling party. Everything. There's hardly any resistance worth the name and any resistance that does happen doesn't get recorded in any significant way. It gets, in fact, it gets rubbish. And dissidents uh, who raise their voices find themselves you know, either in jail or harassed with cases, etc. So this is an A, an untenable situation for everybody else, but B, this is this creates another kind of uh, future scenario in which no other party can ever win. Well, this is a very important question. Um, and um, I suppose political parties sometime decide not to contest when they realize that there is no way they can win. I do not only suppose, I, I saw that Bangladesh is a case in point lately. Uh, 
opposition parties just gave up. The situation is not that bad in India at the moment, simply because at the state level, we see a different kind of scenario. And uh, in spite of the recent elections, Uttar Pradesh especially, we have to remember what happened in West Bengal, what happened, of course, in the South and Punjab, uh, even more recently. You have states, interestingly, at the periphery, at the periphery of the core, at the periphery of the Indy Belt, uh, except Rajasthan, most of the Indy Belt is in the hands of BJP. But at the periphery, there is some hope for political parties, opposition parties, to win. So they continue to contest, and uh, for good reasons, because there is so much power at the, at the state level. Except that we've seen on many occasions the loser becoming the winner. BJP may lose elections in Madhya Pradesh, more recently in Maharashtra, and still succeed in getting back. You know, Karnataka is another uh, case of that kind. And this, this is where money power plays a big role, of course, because every man has a price. You can also offer portfolios, ministerial portfolios, and it works pretty well. We, we have very strange situations in many states where a large number of ministers are not from the BJP, in fact, because you had to bring them in, and that was what attracted them uh, in the first place. So that's what uh, uh, we can call, uh, with Gilles Zernier's predatory uh, politics, uh, which means that even if you can win elections, you may not govern the state you've won. And um, in spite of so many rules and regulations, you will never prevent a party to take MLAs in an hotel. That's not something you can pass a law against. Well, the day India passes a law against MLAs in hotel rooms, we'll have reached a different level. Well, I don't know whether uh, you've got the latest, latest thing. It has just happened an hour, hour and a half ago that uh, a new government has been sworn in Maharashtra. And of course, it is not a BJP government because the BJP will support it from outside which is really speaking a win-win situation in many ways. Mm. But you're right. It happened in Assam. It happened in Gujarat. One third of BJP MLAs apparently are from uh, the Congress, which depletes the other parties that much more. And it almost happened in Rajasthan. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say that on the periphery, these parties continue winning, and West Bengal was a classic example, Tamil Nadu also. Attempts are made to dislodge. It happened in uh, West Bengal with the riots and things like that. And, you know, governor constantly saying there is mayhem on the streets. So all these parties have to do two things on in their states. They have to win handsomely. And second, they have to constantly be on their guard because somebody or the other will be thrown into jail or raided. In that scenario, I think the federal system, therefore, is what is keeping the center from getting too big bites, too big. 
Certainly, certainly. I would just qualify that by saying that, yes, federalism is probably the last bastion of democracy, especially now that the judiciary has receded in the background. But it's not what we used to have as a system. You know, if you remember the UPA 1 and 2, you had a federal system that empowered state parties uh, in a really dramatic manner. By contrast, today, you can have demonetization without consulting the chief ministers. You can have the lockdown declared in five hours without consulting the chief ministers. So there is clearly a, a centralization of power at the expense of federalism. And I would add one thing uh, in the same vein. Even social welfare programs are presented as coming from New Delhi, coming from the prime minister himself. Many of them are named after the prime minister in, in anyway. When, when you looked at what happened in the previous government under Manmohan Singh, the states, the states could, could draw benefit from that. And, and uh, they were credited by, for, by the citizens uh, as responsible for welfare programs. So yes, federalism is a very important element of what's left of democracy, but it's not the federalism we used to know in the past uh, 15 years. Now, we've, we've talked about institutions and the political parties coming to individuals. That seems to be another front which the BJP is operating on in, uh, you know, full strength. They've gone after activists. They've gone after, uh, you know, we are talking about what's happened in the last few days. But if you remember, even Bhima Koregaon activists, all human rights workers are still languishing in jail. Uh, they've gone up, uh, after journalists in Uttar Pradesh. But how do you make out, how do you, what do you make of Tista, who's been a long been a critic and a thorn in the government side, in the party side, and the arrest of somebody like Mohamed Zubair, who's really speaking, not an activist as such. How do you see this sudden uh, arrest, back to back, more or less, of these two? Yeah. Well, first of all, let's recall that this is taking place in the wake of a Supreme Court decision. And that takes us back to the judiciary question. Why is the judiciary behaving the way we see it behaving? And I, I would suggest three explanations. One, judges are not appointed the way they used to be. You know, the collegium system is, is different. Uh, by the way, that was the first reform the Modi government wanted to introduce as early as July 2014. It failed to change the way theoretically on the paper judges are appointed. They are still supposed to be appointed by the collegium. In practice, they are not. And uh, Justice Thakur fought that battle and lost that battle because his successors, his three successors in a row, preferred to resign themselves 
not to appoint the judges of the Supreme Court by resorting to the Collegium. Um, now, de facto, the government appoints judges and promotes its own sympathizers, especially because the Sangpa River has infiltrated the judiciary for a long time. So that's one very important change, a long-term change. It has probably reached a, a point of no return in terms of the composition of the uh, Supreme Court. But there are other reasons. Ideology is not the only one. Uh, judges are getting post-retirement jobs now without any cooling off period. And they prefer to please the government before retiring. It's very simple. And last but not least, judges are also blackmailed. Government has files on everybody, including judges. And never forget that uh, justices were targeted by the Pegasus uh, malware as well. So I would recontextualize uh, the arrest of Testa uh, Sitalvad and um, uh, Arbish Kumar uh, in, in this context. Now, that's the precondition. It made it possible. But why has it happened? Well, I think there is a clear attempt to erase the 302 pogrom from the history of India and to take revenge uh, against those who fought for justice. In fact, this, this, this pogrom is not even mentioned in history books anymore. Huh? It has to leave, it has to go, it has to disappear uh, from the past. And um, many of the Gujaratis who are ruling India today uh, do not want to be remembered in history for what has happened in their state when they were ruling it. So to suppress the memories of 2002, they need to silence those who are still speaking for the victims. And that was the case of, of, of both of them, um, Tista Sitalvad and, and Arbesh Kumar. And they are the last one in a long, the last ones in a long list, as, uh, as you say. Uh, the others, uh, the Bhima Koregaon accused, whom you have been um, mentioning, were also arrested because they dissented. And uh, we are in a situation when no dissent is uh, acceptable. Th this is exactly what an authoritarian regime does. When someone indulges in repressing dissent, any dissent has to be repressed. There is no, there is no limit, especially when you know that the dissenters tell the truth. You know, the truth has to disappear, like the memories of 2002. So all authoritarian regimes work that way. That, that's why they gradually become police states, resorting to surveillance, phones are tapped, files are created to blackmail friends and fools, because friends too need to be controlled. Uh, some of them cannot be truly, um, fully trusted. So gradually you see control becoming an end in itself, state power becoming an end in itself. You know, today you wonder, why does this government want control, full control for? What are the policies you make possible by being so much in control? Well, it has nothing to do with policies. It's a reflection of a quest of power for the sake of power. And possibly also because of the sense of insecurity. You know, they, these leaders have never been so, so sure, so secure 
And by the way, that's where they never give press conferences. You know? They do not know what they could respond to questions they have not prepared in advance. So this sense of insecurity is, is very much very deeply rooted and makes this repression reflex even more important. And, and you can go back, I will just stop with that, uh, you can go back in history and, 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 uh, and, 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 and say that Hindu nationalism itself is rooted in a deep sense of insecurity. There, there is an inferiority complex because of the fear of uh, uh, divisions of Hinduism based on caste and class, um, because the elite of the country has, has never been on their side, uh, the, the intellectual elite. Uh, has never been on their side. And last but not least, because you have only 37% of the Indians who voted for BJP. So how can you be so sure that you are the hegemon? You're not. And it makes repression even more necessary. Repression of dissent, at least. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to the wire talks. But at the same time, I mean, this insecurity and um, complex, even in the present administration, present ruling party, which comes from the same thing, is a little uh, counterintuitive because you have a large number of MPs, you have an opposition which is in no position at the moment at least to win. The media is on your side. Every institution has been compromised. They, they, the elite, the business class, etc., even if they want to say something, are scared. Most ordinary people, the middle classes, are uh, very... Uh, I mean, just I hear this all the time. You must have heard this a thousand times. Uh, you know, it's not safe to criticize openly, etc. In that case, why this insecurity about a small fact checker? Well, for all the reasons I have listed, I think they are really um, explaining to a large extent this obsession with, with repression, to suppress truth, to suppress dissent, and this fear of not being such a strong hegemon, because you're not. But I would add one reason uh, that I think will become more and more important. The economy is not doing well. The economy is in a crisis. And this crisis is probably bound to gain momentum, to, so to speak. Um, and it's affected not only the um, economy, but also society. Well, the economy, just, just to give uh, one uh, example, uh, the, the rupee has never been so low in spite of the $50 billion already spent by the RBI. And this is the beginning of a crisis that will deepen uh, be, because of the Ukraine war. Inflation is on the rise and India is allergic to inflation, like many other countries, uh, because that eats the poor immediately. And joblessness is clearly all pervasive. And, and the mobilization of young jobless Indians who set trends on fire shows that, well, 
everything everything can happen now uh, and, and and therefore the government needs to to distract the public opinion from this kind of so not only you suppress dissent but you raise issues of a different kind for making people forget that their policies are taking the country in a direction that will not create jobs that will not make the life of the poor and the middle class easier so that's clearly a sense a good reason for being insecure when you do not deliver you cannot be really sure of your followers on the economy no matter what you do and you distract people that's a short term measure and maybe you can keep on doing it but ultimately that will be the legacy that will be uh, people i mean it still may not affect your electoral chances but that will be the the legacy that uh, will be left behind that he was he was a poor manager of the economy which he had promised yeah but i do think that for narendra modi you do not win elections on economic result it's a, a really something he learned in 2004 when the uh, shining india slogan was not sufficient for bjp to win so that's an additional problem uh, it doesn't pay attention to the economic issues and because that's not f- a priority for winning elections polarization works much better than uh, economic successes for winning elections uh, and and that's an additional problem we just discussed two individuals but when you have some a juggernaut a machine which is operating full time 24/7 at your service like the media and the chances of the media changing its tune are next to zero why would you be worried about what a couple of small digital sites say with hardly any following well i think that these small media actors represent much more than uh, you think first of all we are following them abroad systematically and uh, they are the most reliable sources uh, of information we can think of they secondly social media can also amplify what these small outlets say and they do and thirdly even if it's not a mainstream message a mainstream uh, actor when someone even a lonely voice says something true it has to be suppressed because this truth can uh, become popular and uh, if it spreads then the king is naked and the first person who says the king is naked make the others realize that he is naked and all of a sudden the king is ashamed and can't cope with uh, his situation so as i said authoritarian regimes have to suppress everybody in the end because only one dissenter dissenting voice can undermine their uh, authority rather quickly now a caveat to that the way people are brainwashed make them less and less accessible to truth and uh, the fact that you 
have been bombarded by propaganda for years makes very difficult sometimes simple explanations to percolate. Now, this is something I'm, I'm now realizing with, with my students who have not heard what happened in India, not only in 2002, but on many other occasions. You have to, to train them in everything. And that's a big challenge, which makes the kind of work um, we are doing much more complicated than before. Because we have to not only counter prejudices, but we have to inform, to, to go back to the basic, the basic elements of the Indian history. So uh, maybe one day, nobody will believe in anything except lies. Uh, that, that kind of is a little true in other societies also. As we saw for four years in the United States, that's true of other places too, other countries too, such as uh, what we saw in the United States, where people actually believe that the election was stolen. And uh, now it emerges that President Trump wanted to join the rioters. So you can imagine. Do you think, this has been intriguing me quite a bit, but do you think that this the BJP is in a bit of a hurry? Because certain things, this particular, from 2019 onward, Things have moved rapidly, uh, much more than in the first five years. Do you think there is a sense of urgency to achieve something? I don't know. This is a difficult question. There may be reasons for being in a hurry we don't know. The economic, social and economic crisis may be a good reason for suppressing dissent and for also distracting people from other realities. And that's clearly one possibility. Um, there, may also, there may also be the need to, to pacify hardliners, and uh, it's something you see when you surf on the social media. Um, there is now, I would say, a right-wing in BGP, a right-wing dimension of BGP, or people who are out of BGP, who are asking for more, uh, always more. So... You have to diffuse this kind of tension. But frankly speaking, this acceleration is very relative because the speed of events since 2014 is already quite remarkable when you think of all the campaigns we've seen. And, and if you look only at the, um, at the ones directed against Muslims, we had the Antil of Jihad, Garvapsi, uh, of course, cow protection related uh, campaigns. Uh, anti-land jihad, you know, every six months or so there is something new. Uh, and that's on also only in, in this domain. So there may be a sense of precipitation now, acceleration now, but there is in any case a trend. And uh, I'm not sure it's really announcing something qualitatively different. You know, there may be a difference in degree, but the sense of direction is the same. So just when these arrests were happening, President Modi was in uh, Germany meeting world leaders. And uh, everyone, at least by reports appearing in the Indian media, everyone uh, gave him a warm welcome. They went out of his way to shake their hand. President Macron also was very warm. Now, again, I, I, I 
must clarify that this is what has appeared here and the gifts he gave to all these uh, world leaders. But the fact of the matter is that world leaders, especially Western countries, developed countries, are not calling out the Indian government for all that is happening. What could be uh, one reason? What could be the reasons for this warmth, this extra mile that they are walking just to be warm towards India? Well, I would say two things there. Uh, this warmth is clearly a legacy of the idea that India would be necessary to balance China. That was an idea that crystallized, well, along with the idea of the Indo-Pacific, something like five years ago. That has been reinforced now by the idea that, well, we may win over India in its new variant of the Cold War, that is the relations between the West and Russia. Now, the idea that uh, India may not remain neutral is still there. And uh, there, is a, there is some hope in the West that eventually India will realize that uh, to get its weapons from Russia only or mostly is really not a good idea. Uh, first of all, because these weapons are not terribly effective in Ukraine itself. Secondly, because uh, some of the supply chain will be um, delayed, if not destroyed, by the condition of Russia in the near future. So these are the two reasons, China and Russia, where there is certainly um, a kind of reflex of forgiving or, or forgetting uh, what's going on. In, in the country. Secondly, there is still this idea that this is a huge market and we have a lot of things to sell, including weapons. And, and that's an additional reason for not interfering with domestic policies or uh, events in, in India. Now, that said, what I could see in the US, in UK, even in France, is a new sense of hesitation. You know, and, and that's a recent development, I must say. We are approached as scholars by ministers of foreign affairs, ministers of ministries also of, of defense, and asked, where is India going? What is the next flare-up? When? Where? You know, very precise questions. Interestingly, this is new. It's not public, but it's reflecting a new awareness that was not there only six months or one year ago. So this warmth may not be forever. And uh, the Ukraine war, the relationship of India with Russia may play a different role. In fact, if, if the West realizes that there is no way India can become a friendly country, a partner, even an ally. That, that's, that's the kind of response I would give, um, which, is, which is not uh, an easy one, but um, reflecting some changes and some, some evolution. So that, that sense of what an alarm of what was happening in India was always there, but it has begun to be articulated that much 
more forcefully, etc. And if, because we are already importing a lot of oil from uh, Russia, uh, and that you can't really, you can justify, you can understand, because we need oil, we don't have too much money to pay. Um, so if it's coming, why not take it? But if that continues, then uh, I think, as you said, uh, there will be some rethink in Western capital. There'll be a sense of uneasiness, uh, definitely. That is already palpable and quite understandable. Uh, there was a trust that seems to have been betrayed. There is a disappointment. And uh, it, it remains to be seen how will that translate in concrete terms. It can be, it may have minimum, minimal effects. For instance, uh, some transfers of technology may not take place simply because the fear of seeing this technology elsewhere in the hands of friends, but also enemies of the West, maybe one of the fear, yeah, maybe there. So that would be a minimal impact. You may have more larger consequences in terms of trade deals, you know, all these FTAs which are supposed to be negotiated at the moment. This is a difficult process uh, for many reasons, including, for instance, the fact that uh, you think in terms of flows of uh, data, but India doesn't have any credible personal data protection law. And, and, and you know, that's only one of the uh, problems, challenges that will be met when the FTAs will be negotiated. So that can have larger consequences, but it's too early to say, really too early. This war will last for a long time, and the consequences it will have on the economies of our countries will impact the geopolitical relations, inevitably. Uh, how far? Really, it's too early to say. So to not sum up, but to look forward, where do you see India heading socially, politically, economically? Uh, you, you ended that particular answer with, the, with a reference to the Ukraine-Russia war. And if that continues for a long time, there'll be an impact everywhere. Where do you see India heading in the next few years? Yeah, th there is never, I mean, there is hardly any moment when you say, well, we've reached a point of no return. So things can change. What we can predict is that the economy will not recover easily in the context of today. That's almost certain. And uh, that will be a big, big challenge. You know, stagflation is around the corner. And uh, that's very bad for job creation. That's for the economy. Society will definitely remain polarized because this is uh, the dominant uh, style of politics. And uh, society will have to resist polarization as much as it can. Politically, state elections of 2022-2023 will be interesting to follow. Gujarat, definitely. Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh. They, these state elections will prepare the ground for, for the 2024 elections. 
If the opposition parties realize that it's only by joining hands that they can dislodge BGP from power, and if they show that practice, if they experience this experiment, this practice at the state level, there may be some alternative in the making. That's what happens in that's what happened in in places like Turkey, Israel. It took 15 years to opposition parties to join hands and, and finally, at least temporarily, dislodge Netanyahu from power in Israel. If that does not happen... You mean Israel? Yeah, you know that's... You mentioned Turkey. Well, Turkey is also a place where you see the opposition parties joining hands and Erdogan may have a tough time next year to win the uh, elections once again. Uh, even in this very authoritarian regime that Turkey has become, you can see a possibility for an alternative um, because of this new attitude of opposition parties. So that's why I say a point of no return is, is not easily reached. And uh, there are many ifs, but um, uh, this, the, the sense of direction can, can change for sure. Uh, I'm, 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 not, I'm not considering that uh, it's game over. It's not game over. Okay, so on that note, <laughs> I'd, I will not say whether it's a hopeful note, pessimistic note, or optimistic <laughs> one. But on that note, uh, we just heard a very, very academic and uh, yet uh, very, very grounded um, assessment of what is happening in India at the moment and where it is likely to go. But then it, this was Professor Christoph Jaffrelow, author of so many books on India and the neighborhood, talking to us. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Siddharth. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back once again next week with another guest on the Wire Talks. Till then, from me, Siddharth Patia, and the rest of the team, goodbye. You can check out this podcast and other interesting ones on the Wire website, the IVM podcast website, app, or wherever else that you get your podcasts. Goodbye from me, Siddharth Bhatia, and the Wire Talks podcast team.